0: Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church, located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Are you ready for the message? Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Let's let's dive in. Uh, I got a great one for you today. The reason why I know it's a great one is because we have a great God. Amen. His word is great. Uh, it does not return void, so I can be terrible at this, but God can breathe on it. Come on now. Um, We're in a series titled, A Church That Changed the World. Everybody say, change. Change. Man, there's something about change being always constant, but at the same time, sometimes we never change the things that need to change the most in our lives. Can we agree with that? I, I came across this John Wooden quote. Can I read it to you? Good old John Wooden, everybody. Failure is not final, but failure to change might be. Failure to change might just be fatal. Now, we're looking at the book of Acts in this series, and what we're trying to figure out is, what was it about this early church that made them just so powerful and so beautiful to the world that they loved them? And, and not only that, how did this ragtag group of 120 literally become millions and now two billion today? Like, what did they have that we didn't? Because I know what we had that they didn't. They didn't have buildings like us. We don't really have a building, we're leasing. If you want to get us a building, we're always open. I'm well, anybody, anybody going on again, okay, one, two, three, okay. Um, they didn't have Instagram to get the word out, they didn't have the Facebook, or they didn't have TikTok. Uh, they didn't have the lights and a worship team. So what did they have? How did they take back ground? I'm going to give you the answer to the very end of my message. I'm going to do like a movie where you see the end of the movie, and then we go back to the beginning to see how they got there. Does that sound good? Yeah. Here's the big answer. Here's what they had that maybe the church in America has lost today. Great prayer. They had great prayer. Not occasional prayer. Not I sometimes pray, not I pray for myself and if I, get, I pray for myself to get this job kind of prayer. They had great prayer. And if you read Acts 4, you'll see the reason why they had great prayer is because it starts out with them knowing they have a great God. Amen. You cannot have great prayer without a great God. Another thing you see with this great prayer is they have a great unity. All of them know this great God and they want the same thing. They want to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Great prayer is an interesting thing. How do you define it? I'm going to give you an illustration. I think the, the greatest type of prayer you can have is a simple prayer. Is the heater on? I smell heat. I'm so sorry. The, I think the heater's on. Sorry. Either that or it's the Holy Spirit. He's just <laughs> heating it up. Do what you want to do, Lord. Do what you want to do. If you want it to be hot in here, we can have it hot in here. Okay, um, back to my message. Sorry, rabbit. <laughs> Frisbee. Uh, anyways, um, uh, let me give you an illustration of what great prayer is. Because I think some of you in the house, you want great prayer. You're not going to have great victories. You're not going to have a great life. You're not going to have the great things that God promised you in John 15 when he said that you will do even greater things. Come on now, John 14, excuse me. He promised that we would do even greater things. You're not going to do greater things if you don't have great prayer. That's right. And so what does great prayer look like? I'll I'll show you. Um, It's a simple illustration, but um, how many of you, uh, when Halloween comes, you... um, uh, make sure your house looks like the house that is on. You're ready to give all the candy away. You got the lights on. You got the door ready. You got all the candy ready. Who's, who are those people who love giving out candy on Halloween? I'm not celebrating Satan's day. Everybody relax. Okay, <laughs> We'll call it Harvest Day. Okay, um, How many of you, though, on Halloween... You make the house look very uninviting. You turn the lights down, make it look like you're not home. You know, you, you watch TV maybe upstairs instead of downstairs so nobody bothers you. You're like, this house is not welcome. Don't even try to trick-or-treat here, folks. <laughs> Anybody do that? Uh, you're not brave enough to raise your hand, but you, I know some of you out there do, do that, okay? Now, now the reality is, is prayer is simply this. You're leaving the light on. You're leaving the door unlocked and you're saying, God, you are welcome in my life. You're welcome in my home. You're welcome in my church. Come and do what you can only do. You are welcome to be God in my life. Light on, door unlocked. That is great prayer. Yeah. The sad thing is, is God's literally says in Romans 3.20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, everybody say, open the door. Some of you need to open the door today. Open the door. I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. A lot of us say we want God, but God's not going to, he's a gentleman. He's not going to barge his way into your home or into your life. When's the last time you said just in your home, your apartment, wherever you live, and you said, God, you're welcome in this place. God, you're welcome in my home. When was the last time the church just had a prayer together and said, God, you're welcome in this church. Do what only you can do. When was the last time you said in your own life, God, you're welcome to do whatever you want to do? Sadly, when God scans the earth, he sees more houses with the lights off and the door locked than the doors open and the lights on. Wow. But in Mission Church, and let's turn the light on. Yeah. Let's open the door. Can we just pray that prayer real quick even right now? Can we do that? Yes, yes. We're spiritual today, praying and salvations. is everything out of order. Will you open your hands? This, is, this isn't even praying for messages. This is praying for you, praying for me. God, we simply say you're welcome in our life. Oh, you're welcome to do what you can only do. Oh, God, would you heal things that we can never heal? Oh, God, would you, would you awaken things that need me to awakened in our life? Would you restore would you, dreams that have been broken? God, things that have been just done to us from people that have hurt us so deeply. God, you're the only one that can get to the root of it and heal it and cause there to be life there instead of death there. Oh, God, you're welcome in our life. You're welcome in this church. Oh, we love you. We love you. And everybody said? Amen. All right, turn your Bibles to Acts 4. We're going to get into it. Acts 4, Acts 4, Acts 4. We're going to start in the middle, Acts 23. Uh, if you wanted a linear message today, you're not going to get it. Uh, but you're going to get a heart, I think, that is so powerful. The Tama message is the rhythm of revival. The rhythm of revival. You'll see in Acts 4, after Acts 2, the church's birth. And you start seeing the rhythm of revival from Acts 4. You'll see it repeated in Acts 6. And you'll see it through the church till now in the 1700s, the 1850s, and of course the 1900s, all the revivals. And I just want to read you. This whole bulk of Acts 4, and the bulk of Acts 4 is just a prayer. It's just them praying. And the reason why they're praying is because they are facing adversity. They're facing a crisis. So if you're in the house today and you're facing something, you came to the right service today. If you go to a church in the Bay Area, you came to the right place today. (laughs) Because if you go to church in the Bay Area, we are facing a crisis. We are facing adversity. We're facing uh, something that doesn't look like it can be moved. It doesn't look like it can be shaken. It looks solidified. It looks like this is a done deal. This is just how things are. But you start to read Acts 4. The things that were a done deal are not a done deal because God's not done working. Now, let me read you Acts 4 real quick. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report of all the believers, lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord, against uh, his Messiah. In fact, this happened here in this very city. For Herod, Antipodes, Pontius, Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Just to give you a heads up, God's not surprised by any travesty. Yeah. And He is ready to redeem a travesty, though. Oh, he it? doesn't create them, but He's ready to redeem them. Amen. Travesties happened when sin happened in Genesis 3. Too long of a thing to teach right now, but we'll go on later. Okay. Uh, Acts 29. <laughs> and now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness. Everybody say great boldness. Great boldness. Oh, I love this is great all over in Acts 4. Great boldness in preaching your word. I love what they're pray- praying for. And, and I've said this before in our church, and I said it, I said it, I said it the second week of our church. I said, if your prayers were answered, what would the world look like, or would your driveway just be full of cars? The reality is, if your prayers were answered today, like, like just you're all these prayers, you know, da-da-da, and they actually were answered in one second, what would it look like? Would you just have a better job, and your, your driveway be full of cars, but everything else in the Bay Area is still going to hell in a handbasket? And you're like, praise God, he answers prayers. Or if you actually prayed prayers, and if God answered, the Bay Area would see a transformation where lives would be healed, the death would be restored. you got to ask yourself that question. Man, what do my prayers look like this week? What happens if you did answer them? Pray for yourself. Go for it. But... Make sure you pray for the church and for revival and courage to actually proclaim the name of Jesus. So they said, their prayer is there's nothing selfish in it. They said, give us boldness to preach your word. Because earlier in Acts, it says, if we keep preaching the word, we're going to go to jail and get killed. So they're saying, can you just give me boldness? They go on and say, stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook. Everybody say, shook. I love how Jesus didn't show up the same way each time. This is what we call theophany. A theophany is very, um, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, uh, commentary ish or theological, uh, you know, grammar. But a theophany is just in a visitation of God where you can actually see Him there in some kind of way. So, like in Acts 2, there was a theophany. You saw Him with the, 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 the tongues of fire. And so they're like, whoa, like, like there is fire resting. God is here. And then in Acts 4, God doesn't show up with fire again. He shows up and He shakes the place. You go back in Genesis, Mount Sinai, when Moses is coming down, guess what God does in Mount Sinai? He shakes the mountain. Why is God shaking it? It's amazing when the earth gets shook. Come on now, any hoopers out there when you got shook a little bit? Anybody got their ankles broken in a basketball game before? Just me? Never mind. Okay, we'll go past that. I'm not even going to use that illustration. You didn't respond well enough, you don't get it, okay? Basketball illustration, it's gone, okay? I'll give you something different. Um, The reality is, is that when this place got shook, and when God shakes things, it's amazing what happens when things get shaken up. And the church starts shaking things up with great grace, with great kindness, with great generosity. But the reason why things got shaken up is when God shakens things, just like he shook the mountain in Genesis, is he shows us that things that were immovable are now movable. Yes. So when God shows up and starts to shake, the, the disciples of Jesus start to see something. Hold on a second. Something I, did you, the whole place shook. If God can shake a mountain, he can shake a government. If God can shake a mountain, he can shake death. If God can shake something that I never thought could move, the things in front of me that I thought were in front of me that could never move, he can shake those also. I think some people need some shaking today in the name of Jesus. So some of you, you've you've been conceded to this life and saying, this is the way it is. It is not movable. This is just going to be my marriage. This is just going to be the Bay Area. This is just going to be my health. This is just going to be my lot in life. And when God comes and shakes everything, you say, hold on a second. None of this is my lot. I have a greater God, and I believe in greater prayer, and I believe in greater things. So maybe, just maybe, you need to believe that God can shake some things that you didn't think you could shake. Amen. But as he's shaking the things you never thought he could shake, even when he shakes those, he's starting to solidify things he never thought he could solidify. So as the world, you see it, things that look like mountains to you now look like jello. And spiritual backbones that were made of lasagna now become spiritual backbones made of pure steel. That Christians start to say, okay, the world now can shake, but now I'm unshakable. Now I'm the one that's going to have a a grace on my life. Now I'm going to have a a courage on my life. I'm going to have a boldness. Give me an unshakable kind of spirit, God. Give me a spirit of courage, not a spirit of fear. And trust me, the Bay Area needs some not fearful people. Fear is a dime a dozen right now in the Bay Area. Courage is hard to find. Can we have some courageous Christians? Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. So the place shook. I was going to tell a message, a church that was shaken, but I went with the rhythm of revival. Whichever one you like better, you can have it. Um, let's keep going. The church was shaken, and they were filled. Everybody say filled. So Rachel and I have been married 10 years, just celebrate 10 years. Shout out, baby boo. Come on now. It's been a great 10 years, great 10 years. I'm learning how to be a great husband. I'm trying my best. Um, we've had a really, really fun years, to be honest. Um, now, our first about five to six years, we played this little fun game with the car. Who can leave the car on empty, the lowest, to where the other one has to fill it up? Any other married couples play that game? Raise your hand. You, you, you come home, you come rolling in, you're like, they're going to have to fill it up. Next time they drive, there's no way they're not going to fill it up. And then the next time, they do it, okay? Now, the reality is, is I hate that game. Oh, it just makes my skin crawl. Like, you know? The way I've been built my whole life, is once I hit a quarter of a tank, I fill that baby right back up. Who's the people, once you hit a quarter of a tank, you fill it up? Who are the crazy psychos who like to run it on the gaslight and be like, oh, there's another 10 miles in there? Man, may you impart that kind of courage in us, how you live life that way, just driving all confident, like, oh, we're good, we're good. Are you sure? Oh, no, I are good. This, this, this baby's got some juice in it, you know? Five or six years, and to be honest, I lost that battle. I was always filling the car up because I couldn't go low. Like Rachel would roll it in. Like Rachel, would you attest I filled the car up probably ninety-five percent of the time our first five or six years? Yeah. Did you even see a gas station in the first five years? They still exist. Do we I, do we have electric cars? I don't, do we do you plug it in or something? No, we, they were we had a GMC Terrain. That thing was a gas guzzler, anyways. Okay. So anyways, um, and marriage is cute when when you're like you know trying to figure out like who's going to fill the car up. It's like it's like adorable. You know, like, like it's nothing really bad can happen in marriage. It's fatal, though, in the church. It's fatal because when I think about what the early church had and what we don't have is the early church knew that if they were going to go into this world, they need to be filled. And the, the church today, man, we're the Lamborghini. We got the rims. We got everything. The only thing we forgot was to fill up the tank. It's a little game. You fill it up. No, I'm busy, you fill it up. You no, know, you, you fill the tank, I, I don't got time to fill the tank up. I thought Tuesday team prayer filled the tank up for everybody. And the reality is, is maybe just maybe why your home is the way it is and your marriage the way it is. And I'm not trying to preach uh, bad news today. All you're gonna find is good news today, but you're gonna have to find it with truth. And the truth is, is the reason why your tank is so low is you don't have great prayer. Come on. And so the way that you have to navigate your life is, is when you start to bring great prayer to God, there will be a shaking in your life, and there will be a filling in your life. And if you can't get to where you're going, maybe just maybe it's because you forgot the one thing you're supposed to do with the car is fill it up. So, so as a church, man, I want us to, the reason why I have team prayer, and this is what's so cool about church, actually, is the Bible shows 120 people prayed and 3,000 were filled. So when it comes to church, I'm just looking for 120 120. You know what, if you want to be a 125, we want to go above, hey, we're the overachiever church. Let's just do more then, okay? But I'm looking for legit people saying, I want to be great, great at prayer this next season. Yeah. Tuesday, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to set my life apart and I'm gonna become a great prayer warrior for the kingdom and for my family. I'm gonna I'm gonna come to team prayer on Tuesday and just pray for an hour for the church and for the region and for all the other things we pray for on Tuesday. Now I'm gonna pray on Tuesday, I'm gonna pray every day. Yeah. I'm gonna come to pre-service prayer and pray. Now what I love about the church is if 120 prayed, 3,000 were filled, that's a great thing. But you won't find in the Bible where other homes were filled because one family prayed for their family and the other family's house was good. I want us to have revival in church, but I want you to have revival in your home. I want you to have life in your home. I want you to have vibrancy in your home. And you're not going to have vibrancy without the filling of God, the, the beauty of his spirit. And the reality of why your house is so empty is you just didn't ask God to fill it. He stands at the door and knocks and he is waiting to fill your house with all the things you can ever fill with. Can I get an amen for that? I'm going to read the last scripture, and then we're going to go into prayer. And with the Holy Spirit, they, then they preach the word of God with boldness. Boldness. Just something about a car that has a loud, loud revving noise. Come on now. The church is loud in a good way. We bow your heads. God, as we look in your word, as we look at the, the rhythm of revival, Lord, I pray right now that this is the people in the house today that, that came to church and thought they were just coming to a normal Sunday. God, we just throw out the mindset of normal Sunday, yeah. and we come with the mindset of encountering a great God this yeah. morning. God, may we hear your voice. May we see your face. May we, may, we, may we actually experience you move in the room today. Oh, God, we contend for it. May my words fall to the floor and your words soar. God, we need you. We need you. And everybody said... So how do you get great great prayer? Three things. It's going to be quick. We have baptisms today, so I'm going to finish on time today. Sure, Tyler, I will. (laughs) Three things. You need a great God, you need great unity, and you need great grace. And Acts 4 shows all those things. If you want to have great prayer in your life, you need those three things. Here we go. You need a great God. You need a great God. Now, we pick up in Acts 4. Acts 2, last week I preached on. It was the first church, the first sermon. 3,000 salvations. Now in Acts 4, we're going to see another 2,000 salvations. The church is on the move. Acts 3, we see the first miracle. Ooh, it's amazing. Um, This guy who is a lame beggar, Peter walks by and says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The man gets up and walks, and guess what? The people in power do not like that they're losing power to this uh, God named Jesus because people are starting to follow Jesus more than following their political system. So then they want to arrest Peter before doing something nice. Can I just tell you real quick, the world is not always going to like what you do. You can, But may they be upset with you, like they're upset with Peter for doing something kind. Okay? Sometimes you're like, well, the, you know, the, I, the Bible says I'd be persecuted. Now, you're a jerk, okay? And you're not nice. You're not being persecuted because you love Jesus. You're being persecuted because you're a punk, okay? You are a Jesus jerk. You are self-righteous. You're like Angela from The Office. You are just the worst, okay? Anybody watch The Office? Oh, Angela makes me cringe. She'd be. I would meet. If she went to my church, I would meet with her on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. I'm like, things got to change, Angela. You are self-righteous. Okay. Acts four. To have a great prayer life, you need to have a great God. And here's what we see from Peter and why he is so committed to living the life God called him to live. It's not because he knows he's great. It's because he knows God's great. Let me show you. Acts four. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came at Peter and John while they were uh, speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. Because there's another greatly. When you do great things, the world will be greatly disturbed. Come on. Greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, so they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Bam. So 3,000, 2,000, now 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Uh, Annas and the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John Alexander, others in high priest families. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to uh, question them. By what power or what name did you do this? If you don't understand culturally, what they're saying is, for people to go proclaim a new good news, like a new ruler or a new God. You need a license and I don't see no license. Where's your license to proclaim Jesus? So they're asking, I need you, I need I need to let you know you need permission to talk about Jesus. And man, I, I, when I read the book of Acts, I just see our Bay Area so loud. I feel like the bears, like, I didn't give you permission to talk about Jesus. Who gave you permission to talk about Jesus. And the reality is, is that I've had well-meaning people tell me as I Live my life, and the reason why, I, to be honest, I've been too quiet about sharing Jesus. I've been too quiet about uh, just sharing the goodness of God because I don't want to offend somebody. And I, I, you know, we're in a our 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 culture is just like Roman. The Roman culture is so similar to us. It was it was polytheistic, pluralistic. It was basically you can believe in all the gods, but you can't have one god. And the reason why the Roman culture loved it was all the pluralistic gods were regional gods. You had a God who was a God of this region. You had a God that was specific to this type of, of, you know, like the sun. But there's no God that ruled over everything except one, and his name was Emperor. He was the Caesar. Caesar loved it because he reigned over all. He was the divine one. So he didn't mind all gods because they were were all geographical, but the one that ruled over all the gods was Caesar. Be wary of power structures that don't want to lose their power. And so so I've had well-meaning Christians tell me, you know, hey, I believe, not well-meaning Christians, excuse me, well-meaning people when I have discussions say, hey, um, I'm just going to, Submit my idea, I think that like all good people are gonna find their way to heaven. Like the Jesus thing, like you gotta like relax on the Jesus thing. I feel like that's, I don't really believe in that. I just believe that good people, like if you're good enough, you're gonna go to heaven. And the problem with that statement when they tell me that is that 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 ideology is saying to me that I'm going to hell. And the reason why I'm going to hell with their ideology is because I know I'm not good, I'm bad. And for you to tell me that good people go to heaven, your new gospel message just sent me to hell. Because I know myself. And if you knew my childhood, and you talked to my sisters when I was their brother, they're not gonna say he was a good guy, okay? When me and my sister fought, we would fight, fight. I would throw baseballs at my sister when we fought, okay? I remember this one time, my sister and I were fighting, and she was sitting in front of the TV, and I was so mad. She's, you know, she was um, six feet by uh, sixth grade, by the way, my sister, and I was like five foot, so she was stronger than me, and so she beat me up real good, uh, just like literally sit on top of me and just punch me, and so I was mad, and so I went in the backyard, and I grabbed a ball, and I looked at my sister, and her back was too, she was sitting on an ottoman like this watching the TV, not knowing what was about to happen, and I had a baseball, and it was a pitcher, and I was like, oh, you want, you want a fastball? Okay, perfect, and I was gonna aim it right at the middle of her back, and I remember I was like, okay, here we go, and I released the baseball. And you know that feeling when you know you shouldn't do something? I didn't feel that at all, okay? Zero percent. You wanna know why? Cause I'm not good. I'm bad. I delighted in it. I watched the ball just fly to her back, and this is what happened. She got hit, she goes, and I remember it hit her back, and she's like, ah, and she fell down, she's like, oh, why did you do that? And I felt like I killed her. And, she's like, and, and all I yelled was, sniper! And then I ran to my friend's house. And I didn't know she's alive. I don't know if she's dead. I don't know if I did anything to her. I just knew I yelled sniper. And I was like, and my dad, my dad was a disciplinarian. He would discipline in all different ways. And I knew I was dipped. So I didn't run to my dad, like, oh, dad, I did something wrong. No, I ran to my buddy's house. felt like I was in a witness protection program. And my sister called, Is Tyler there? I haven't seen him. I'm like, hang the phone up. Okay. Next phone call. Is Tyler there? It's my dad. Yeah, he's there, Bob. He's here, Bob. It's my buddy Tony. I got the phone. Hey, dad, come home. saw your sister's back. All right, I'll be home. I remember walking home, and as I was walking home, I I just remember dreading, oh, dreading it. I just, I I knew I I didn't even, I was dreading getting in trouble, not dreading hurting my sister still. I had no remorse. Mm. Zero. I didn't care. I was numb to hurting her. I was just upset I was going to get in trouble. I remember walking, like, oh, my dad came in, and my sister lifted up her back, and you could actually see the seams of the baseball. <laughs> One second of impressive. I was like, that's impressive. <laughs> my dad says, this is your sister. You did this to your sister. And He grounded me, took some of my favorite things, spanked me. And I was like 10. I was like, we were past spanking, but I got another spanking, and it was my room. and For most of my life, I've always been concerned about me getting in trouble not hurting people. my oh, god. So Be honest, I think most of us, if I'm being honest, we're worried about consequence. We're not worried about hurting people. And so when you tell me that good people go to heaven, I'm dipped. And the reality is, is that all truth claims are power claims. Everybody who claims some truth, they're claiming literally the way. And so when they tell me, well, Jesus can be one of the gods, and that's fine with me, but he can't be the God problem is, is Jesus the only God I got? Right. And the Jesus that I know is the Jesus that said, I'm the great I am. Yes. The Jesus I know says, before the, there was creation, I was. Yes. The God I know is the one that raised Lazarus out of the grave. Oh. The God I know conquered the grave. No, yes. the God did that. So, so, so I only have one Jesus. It's not an arrogance thing. It's an implication thing that he's the great I am, the way, the truth, and life. So I can't have you take him from me. Yeah. And so when you have that kind of God, you just talk different. You can't be talked out of it. And so, so Peter's like, I, I, you want to know my license? My license is who my God is. He's the great I am, the Alpha and Omega, the one that is, who was and is and is to come. He's coming back for me, by the way, on a white horse, robe dipped in blood, eyes of fire. You want to talk about it? Didn't think so. Okay, here we go. That'll be my Revelation series. Uh, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness... Shown to a man who was lame and and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which uh, has become the cornerstone. That's why we become unshakable. Not because we're unshakable, because he's unshakable. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to the mankind but which we must be saved. I, and I hear people say this to me sometimes. Hey, I'll believe in Jesus if you give me an airtight argument. And for the longest time, I'd be like, okay, what's my airtight argument? Okay, I'm looking at how, what, what should I say? And the reality is, uh, I heard a pastor say one time this way, and it's what's sticking with it for now on is, God didn't give us an airtight argument. He gave us an airtight person. Yeah. And his name is Jesus. Yeah. And what I do now is, I don't try to argue with somebody to get to know Jesus. Do you know that Paul's, least fruitful part of his ministry was when he argued with people in Mars Hill. I don't try to argue into Jesus. I just point you to the airtight person that is Jesus and say, just study the life of Jesus for a little bit in your life. And tell me you don't want that. The reality, when people start to study who Jesus is, it's not an airtight argument. He's an airtight person. He is good. He is perfect. He lived a life you wish you would have lived. Historians, I love the story of Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. It's an older one. But his wife got saved and it drove him nuts. He's like, gosh darn it, my wife's going to church all the time, blah, blah, blah. That's it. I'm going to put Jesus on trial. He's a reporter. He studied literally uh, the history of Jesus. And as he studied the history of Jesus, guess what happened? He got saved because <laughs> he's an airtight person. So the first thing you need to understand if you're going to move forward in your walk is you need to get to know the airtight person that is Jesus. Yeah. And as you get to know this Jesus, people have other opinions. And you say, I, I, hey, I, I respect what you believe, but you're not going to change what I believe. Because what I believe, there is no other name of any name that people can be saved. His name is Jesus. And here's why I believe that. He saved my life. He changed my life. People don't need wishy-washy Christians. They need solid, great Christians, okay? And so we need a great God. Next thing you need is great unity. Great unity. Uh, I love this on Acts 4. I just read it to you about the prayer, so I'm just going to read the first part. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So basically, the chief priest said, hey... We're going to release you, but don't talk about Jesus anymore. We're going to kill you, basically. And they went back like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, they're going to still preach Jesus. But there was a fear that grabbed the people. Like, man, like, now the stakes just got raised. So there's, there's more at cost now. And here's what they said. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and all the elders had said to them. When they heard this, everybody say they. They, they heard this. They raised their voice. Everybody say they again. They. There's just a lot of they in there. For a great movement to happen, for great prayer to happen, you must have a great God, but the same thing is you need great unity. They were all concerned about the same thing, about the gospel going forth. They weren't concerned about a house or a job. They were concerned about the gospel going forth and Christian believers having f- faith and boldness to keep going forward. There was great unity about what they wanted to pray for. Let me show you the rhythm of revival real quick. Acts 4, you see a crisis. Then the crisis is answered by prayer. And after prayer, you see the power of God rest on the church. In Acts 4, I'll see it, there's great grace on the church. I'll read that in just a little bit. So you see the next Acts uh, 2, the birth of it. Then Acts 4, you see the rhythm of it. Acts 6, the same thing happens. In 1720... In America, Of course, it wasn't America. It was the the, colonies. But in 1720, the church was in crisis, dead as a doornail. In 1720, they had basically 10% or less people were Christian now. Now, the generation prior, they were ardent. They were passionate. They wanted wanted this to be a Christian uh, nation. They wanted everybody to be a Christian. So you know what they did? They made it a law for you to vote. You had to be saved and baptized to be able to get a vote in. You want to run for office? You have to be saved and baptized. that, that, That was the political structure of the New England era. How many of you know how that works out? Hey, welcome. Hey, if you want to vote, you better say you're a Christian. Get in that tub. Like, how many people come to the Lord when it's a government rule to come to the Lord? So guess what happened in 1720? There was a civic crisis. Nobody was a believer anymore. Nobody could run for office and nobody could vote. They created a thing called a halfway covenant. You don't got to be saved anymore, you just got to get baptized. You just got to get in the tub, and then you can vote and run for office. The spiritual backbone of the next generation was jello. They didn't care about God, they cared about themselves. And then there was this man, I want to read you his name, I want to make sure I say it right, because there was this man who, who decided to grab some people to have great unity to pray for one thing. His name was Cotton Mathers. Cotton Mathers had read the book of Acts. Cotton Mathers had seen the word and he saw that God had a visitation in the book of Acts. And when God visited, he shook things and he changed things. So Cotton Mathers, in 1720, the last few years of his life, he started praying for a visitation. That God's manifest presence would visit the New England era and literally reawake the people to uh, his goodness. Mathers died in 1727 and the rebirth of the new awakening. The first awakening was birthed in 1727. And it swept through America. I mean, it swept through. I mean, not only did it swept through, I mean, the, one of my favorite stories is that there is was, there was this Episcopalian church in Virginia, Dinwiddie, Virginia. And there was this pastor who... What happened in New England, basically, these small churches that were doing one service had to do three services, four services on Sunday, even multiple throughout the week. And this one in Virginia was a small church, but once this revival started breaking out, he had to do multiple services. And they, of course, journaled what had happened. And every single service for three straight years, he had 10 to 20 salvations every service. Over and over again 10 to 20, 10 to 20, 10 to 20. For three straight years, this awakening just just exploded through New England. How did it start? He got a handful of people praying for the same thing. Let's pray that God would come and do what he can only do. Let's not pray for anything else. Let's not pray for that. Let's not pray for this. Let's just pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. And when you get a handful of Christians praying for that, that's what happens in the first awakening. Let's go to 1850. Let's see what happened in 1850. Let's see if the rhythm keeps going. There was this church, New uh, New Park uh, Baptist. sat 1500 in London. And guess what? Crisis again. So what happens with crisis? Well, uh, there's this young man, 19 years old, didn't graduate high school, didn't even attend high school. This church invited him to speak at their church, about 150 or less. They were meeting in the corner of this big building. His name was Charles Spurgeon, and he came in at 19 years old, and he said, if I'm going to preach here, I need a couple things. He started the method of having people pray for him why he preached. So he wouldn't preach unless people were praying for him why he preached. And then he started prayer groups throughout the church. They called them prayer cells back then. And so he started with 150, started pray, uh, preaching. The church uh, filled up 1,500. And then after 1,500, they did two services, 3,000. They couldn't fit in their building anymore. So they're going to they re-bottle it and rebuild it. So they get out of it. They go to this place called Surrey Music Garden. sat 10,000. And they fill it. Okay. After they filled that and their other church being built, they're oh, we're too big for this one. Where should we go? They go to some um, crystal cathedral and it seats 27,000. Guess what they do? They fill it. This church was having a revival on its own before the, uh, the second great awakening. And they asked Charles Spurgeon, Charles, how did this happen? Why are your messages so anointed? What's going on? And I love his answer. Give me a second. I'm going to find it. (laughs) I was flowing, and then I clicked on my thing and went back to the top. Um, When asked to explain the secret of his remarkable ministry, it was the pre-revival to the Great Awakening revival, Charles Spurgeon replied, My people, pray for me. Next question. I know, Charles, but, but now we're the, we're, the, we're the 21st century church. What else? Tell us more. What else? You no, know? my people prayed. Come on. Come on. That's it. It's almost like you hear verses in that. Like when I, when I read that, I heard, you know, 2 Chronicles 14, that like, if my people pray, if they pray, there's an if, I will hear their prayers. Oh, and I will heal their land. Like if they, if they pray, my, well, my people prayed. And there was a revival. Let me, let me keep going real quick. In the middle of that revival, um, England, of course, exploded in our revival, and across the pond, a handful of businessmen decided to pray the same thing on Fulton Street. They called it the Fulton Street Revival, right there off the Broadway area in New York. So picture like 10 to 12 businessmen. Hey, we're going to meet at lunchtime at noon, and we're going to have great prayer, and we're going to pray that God would visit New York City. Oh, we're going to pray and believe for an awakening. Within a year, 10,000 people are praying at noon. Twelve to ten thousand, and there was a great awakening that just exploded again in America. Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa what was the secret sauce? They prayed. They prayed. That's it. They prayed. They said, "God, the door's open. When you're ready to walk in, you can you can come in and do your thing." Some of you are going to go home today, and you're like, "Man, I'm stirred up. I want to pray." So you're going to pray tomorrow. Lord, my life is yours. This house is yours. And then nothing's going to happen, and you're be like, "I tried it." Did you? But did you? They met every lunch for a year, believing, and then whoosh, there was a shaking. And great prayer takes great commitment. takes great unity. People say, I'm going to be committed. I'm going to pray with you. I'll see you at lunchtime. We're going to pray. That's why I so believe in team prayer. We're going to be faithful every Tuesday, and we're going to believe that we're just declaring God the door is open, and he's going to walk through the church in a way. And to be honest, if, if I could just celebrate, what's happened in Mission Church is the birth of God. Like, like this doesn't happen in the Bay Area. Like to be a baby church plant and just whoo, see salvations like crazy, over a thousand salvations. I mean, to see people come to life in Jesus. Um, I, I, I just, again, we, we can't be numb to that. Of course, during that time in the 1850s, uh, a couple of things happened with that Broadway, Fulton Street revival. Uh, Hudson Taylor was saved in that revival. I don't know if you know he is, but I did actually a report on Bible college. He's one of the greatest missionaries. D- Dwight Moody, one of the greatest preachers, of course, connected to college too. He-, he was saved during that revival in New York. There was just all these people saved within that year that were n- the next leaders of the next 40 years. God did a lot in that. A third of uh, Ireland was saved <laughs> uh, during that revival. Um, it's an amazing thing. Millions were saved in the New England area. And then the early 1900s, I, I want to finish with this. I oh, want, well, and then we'll go on to the Great Grace and we'll finish. Um, in the early 1900s uh there was crisis in korea uh, they were being oppressed by china and uh these missionaries went in and just started praying that god would of course stop the oppression and that he would revive uh korea and as they prayed so one of the quicker ones they didn't have to pray for years they just started praying and within months they started to see a transformation in korea and you understand some, in the early 1900s christian christianity wasn't even in korea It was uh, like um, Buddhist and Confucianism. That was the the two religions in Korea. And so these missionaries came in and started praying. And in the midst of that, they became one of the greatest revivals that is going on to this day still. Um, You need to know something. There's an Assemblies of God church in Korea at at this time right now. 750,000 people go to it. I don't know what their sanctuary looks like. I have no idea how they do it. (laughs) The biggest Presbyterian church is in Korea right now. 55,000 people. I mean, literally just different pockets. The biggest churches of every denomination is located in Korea. I, I heard a pastor who I really love share a story. When he went preached in uh, Korea, uh, South Korea, and um, you know came and the interpreter he spoke, and it was Saturday night and because uh, they do a Saturday night service and Sunday mornings and so he went to bed and they, they sent him to bed and he like wakes up at two o'clock and he's like is somebody playing music, what's going on, you know, and like, like and he's like he's oh, like he goes back to sleep four a.m. wakes up he's like man somebody just won't turn that music down, opens the door and the church is you know uh, right across the street and he realizes they sent him to bed, and they all stayed up to keep praying. Because once a month in Korea, they call it climbing the mountain. Once a month on a Saturday night, they pray all night long into service into Sunday morning. And they've been doing that for the last 100 years. Because they know that if the church isn't filled with prayer, it won't be filled up with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's just so adorable, like, okay, American pastor, you can go to bed now, okay? (laughs) We're going to go do what we do. We're going to go pray, all right? The reality is is that if you want to have a great revival. and the rhythm of great revival, there has to be some people that say, man, I'm going to pray like crazy. I'm going to have some kind of rhythm in my life where I say, this is where my flag is. That's what Tuesday team prayer is for our church. I know 930 is not the most convenient time, so if you can't come, pray wherever you're at. But if you can come, be with us, and we're going to be faithful to it, and we're going to believe that every Tuesday as we contend for revival, God is going to do something that we say, point back and say, God, you did it because we cried out to you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to finish. There's an old fairy tale uh, that I read uh, in my commentaries this week, and it was about this beggar who um, had this plate full of food that he had filled up throughout the day for begging for food. He's basically on the street begging for food. They fill it up with some fruits and vegetables, handful of grains of rice, and the king comes by, and the beggar decides to give this king, he's a good king, an offering to say thank you for being a good king. Not a Christian fairy tale, but man, it ties in so well. And so he gives this king all of his rice. It's only five grains of rice, but he gives him all he's got of his rice, keeps his vegetables, keeps his fruit, keeps the other stuff, but he gives the five grains of rice to his king as an offering to his king. Gives it to him and As the day goes on, he puts his food in his little pouch and he walks away. And that night he goes to his pouch to reach, to grab his food, to go to bed and eat. And as he's grabbing his food, he grabs out five gold nuggets, five golden nuggets of real gold, a gift back from the king that somebody snuck in his pouch that he didn't see to say thank you for bringing an offering. And the blind, uh, not the blind beggar, the beggar's biggest regret was he looked at the, the, the five nuggets. He said, oh, if I would have poured my whole plate out to him, what would my satchel look like? Oh, if I would have given more than my five grains of rice, what would my satchel look like? And if I could submit this to you, it's a very simple story, but at the end of our life, we're not going to regret giving God uh, too much. We'll always regret giving God too little. We'll always regret giving him too little time. Now, I mean, Billy Graham, when he was asked, what's your biggest regret of your life? Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist, he goes, my biggest regret in my life is I didn't pray enough. The one thing is I would, have I would have given my God more time just in prayer. The reality is, is that when I shared last week that a fire does not fall on a complacent Christian or a busy Christian, a fire in the Old Testament fall, fell on a sacrifice. And I want to build on that thought real quick. The, the reality is, is throughout the Old Testament, fires would fall on sacrifice, but the reality is the bigger the sacrifice, the bigger the fire. The, 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 the more things laid out, the bigger the response. And so I'm believing that we're going to have a church that says, man, this is my season to sacrifice. This is my season to actually have whatever is in my own soul that I think makes me feel better. I'm actually going to believe God. and I'm going to sacrifice the things of this world and I'm going to give them to God. I'm going to pour out my plate and I'm just going to wait and see what my God pours back. Let me finish with the, the, the big kicker. So as that happens, it says in Acts 4.33, let's finish this. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Everybody say great grace. Great grace. I absolutely loved what Megan shared in her baptism. Uh, I just struck a chord in my heart. I started weeping like a little baby. And it's the reason why is because what she said is, she goes, I used to wear a badge of pride saying I can get through life on my own. And I love it when we exchange that badge of pride and we replace it with a badge of great grace and saying grace is why I get through the day. It says great grace on why I am who I am today. It's his great grace on why I'm being restored right now. It's his great grace on why I'm so generous. It's amazing what you see what happens in the church. When great grace came upon them, it says that Barnabas, one of the apostles, uh, sold uh, he had sold his land and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's always interesting when you see God's power rest on the church. There's this amazing, great response in Acts 2. It says that they sold everything they had and shared it with each other. And so sometimes people ask me, like, tell you, you never really teach on tithing you ever teach on like, you better serve or else? I don't think I have to. The book shows us, and don't know, I, I need to teach scripture and teach the principles of those things, but the Bible shows us when God gets a hold of your heart, yeah. radical generosity happens. Yeah. Radical kindness happens. Radical love happens. Because when, when, when God gets a hold of your heart and there is a shaking, great grace comes upon you, and you become a greater version of yourself than you ever could have been. And so my prayer for the church today is simply this is that you and I would show this world great grace. And the only way we get great grace is we start understanding we have a great God, and then we have some great unity, and then we have some great prayer, and then we see great grace. Do you wanna be a great church, Mission Church? Oh, do you wanna be a great church? Come on. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons.